Tonight we are in this uh, third message dealing with people reaching people. And tonight I just want to look at a, a couple different scriptures dealing with the mark of a true conversion. How many times have you gone out, maybe with a relative or a friend, and it's not uncommon at all to hear about people who make professions about being born again. Oh, I'm a Christian. I prayed the prayer. I did whatever. Uh, but there's no difference in their life. There's no change at all, as a matter of fact. Um, they've never turned from their sin that characterized their uh, lives before they professed being born again. And in their morals, their own personal morals, their marriages, and the way they raise their children and everything, um, it, it doesn't seem like anything's changed. But they're saying, well, I'm a Christian because I prayed this prayer. Uh, I heard a, a podcast the other day um, that Justin Peters did on the, the, the prosperity teacher who we would consider to be a false teacher, Benny Hinn. And for a while there, about a year, two years ago, whatever, he said that he repented of teaching the prosperity gospel and that he was never going to ask anybody to sow a $1,000 seed again to his ministry, that he had repented. And Justin Peters brought up the fact that, well, did he repent? How would we know if he repented? And then he showed a bunch of videos of Benny Hinn sitting with a bunch of prosperity gospel teachers asking for people to sow money into their seed uh, into their to seed sow money as seeds into their ministry and taking advantage once again of um, ill-advised people who give those kind of ministries money and it was interesting in the podcast because Justin Peters said well you know what you wouldn't have to wonder if Benny Hinn repented if he actually did because what he would do, he would come out and he would proclaim himself to be a false teacher. He would say, I've been ripping off people for years. <laughs> and as a result of that, I could never pay everybody back. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to liquidate all the millions and millions of, of money that I have in mansions and cars and jets. And I'm going to do the best I can to compensate those that I've taken advantage of. That would be true repentance. Uh, but you never see that <laughs> usually it's kind of just kind of swept under the carpet and they kind of move on and so the question i want to ask tonight are people who have prayed to receive christ or who claim to be born again but whose lives don't change there's no difference are they truly converted is it wise when you're sharing your faith we're talking about evangelism when you're going out and you're sharing your faith and, and someone says, yes, I just want to pray the prayer. I don't want to go to hell. Let me pray the prayer. Um, is it wise after they, quote, pray the prayer? <laughs> they call it the sinner's prayer. Um, is it wise to encourage them? Is it wise to say to them, welcome to the family. Now you're a Christian. Now you have no more fear of death and all this stuff. Um, a lot of times I'll wait personally. I'll wait to see what happens. <laughs> Because I've been down that road so many times, and then you meet that person six weeks later, and there's no semblance of Christ in their life at all. They're right back to the same old vices they were doing before. And now they basically say, but you know what, Pastor, I know all those sins are forgiven, so I'm good to go. That's, that's their answer. Because you prayed with them, and you gave them what I would call uh, false assurance. And so those who are, are, are truly converted, those who are truly converted as believers in the Bible, um, who have truly converted in faith to Jesus Christ, are, are marked. They're marked out by something that the Bible uses a word called repentance. Repentance. And um, it doesn't mean they're sin, sinless. Okay, it doesn't mean that because... Um, you know, if I said, how many of you sinned today, we'd probably all put our hands up, you know, in, in word, thought, or deed. Somehow, we probably crossed that line at some point. Um, so it doesn't mean that we're sinless, but it does mean that we sin less. That's what that means. In other words, you mourn over your sin. You're sorry for your sin. Uh, they fight against their sin. And when they do sin, they... they they desire to turn away from the sin and turn back to following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when you know 
true transformation has happened, when you know true life has come into someone's life. And so a life of turning to God from sin is the true mark of someone who is converted. Now, that may not happen all at once. It doesn't mean, you know, hey, if you're witnessing to a drug addict who's an alcoholic, who's a a wife abuser, that as soon as they get saved, they're going to live a perfect life. No, we're not saying that. They're going to stumble. They're going to fail. They're going to fall. We all do. But you're going to see a desire for them to do what God wants them to do without you even prompting it. You know, I think a lot of times the problem with the church is we take people who make professions of faith and we teach them how to be Christians. And then we call it discipleship. <laughs> so what we're doing is we're, we're kind of doubling down on their, their false profession, which they think is real. And we're saying, you know, hey, well, in this environment in church, you know, people don't swear, people don't smoke, people don't do this, they don't do that. So when you come here, if you're going to fit in our church, here's what we expect of you. And for one day a week, they do that. <laughs> And they think, okay, this is fine. Um, And so repentance is this mark of someone who is truly converted. And it it definitely relates to the way we share the Lord with people. Uh, If we don't make it clear to people who are without Christ, who are lost in their their sin, that that repentance is necessary for salvation, we're going to produce what I call false converts. You're going to be encouraging people who are not born again, who have not been transformed, that they are, without any evidence of that whatsoever, other than maybe they uttered a prayer or, or they said, Jesus is Lord. And they think that they're, they're truly saved when, when the fact of the matter is they're on the broad way to hell, the Bible says. Remember, the way to heaven is narrow. The way to heaven is, is a narrow gate. A majority of people will not be in heaven one day. A majority of people will be in a place called hell, which is hard to, for us to hear, but that's what the Bible says. And so it's, it's crucial to understand this um, because today there's, there's whole sections of theology that are built around the idea that um, repentance has no part in evangelism, and it has no part in salvation. Um, If you doubt, look up a society like the Grace Evangelical Society. You can look them up, and you start reading their materials, and they're all about free grace. They're all about coming to Jesus as your Savior. Uh, It's nice to have Jesus as your Lord, but that's not necessary for salvation, because if you make that necessary for salvation, then you're teaching that salvation is by works, which is not what that's teaching at all and usually they'll use words like lordship salvation oh you believe in lordship salvation and they kind of pigeonhole you that way and they argue basically that to bring up repentance when you present the gospel is to undermine the doctrine of justification by faith alone Last time we were together, we talked about how we are saved by faith alone. We're not saved by works. We don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But it also says in verse 10 that God has prepared for us good works to do after we're saved. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, someone who claims to be a Christian should have some evidence of that in their faith, in their life. Uh, And there are many verses that connect repentance with salvation. We're going to look at some of those tonight. And this is important because when you share the gospel, what are you sharing? Are you sharing, well, Jesus loves you and has a happy plan for your life? And if you pray this prayer and believe in Jesus, you'll be saved? That's not really the gospel. And we had a good lesson on what the gospel is uh, last week. And so, people who are very much against what we would call lordship salvation, and that's kind of a catchy term, but that's how they, they phrase it. People who are against that say that it only means, the word repentance only means changing your mind. Have you heard that? 
A lot of people say, well, what does repentance mean? Oh, it just means just have a change of mind. That's all it means. A change of mind about Jesus Christ. We've probably all said that at times because it does have that connotation in the, in the definition of the word. And all you have to do is acknowledge that Jesus is Savior and that he is God, and then you will be saved. And they argue against the idea that it doesn't mean turning from sin or changing one's conduct. It doesn't mean that. They argue against that because that would be relating it somehow, they think, to works. They argue that submitting to Christ as Lord is desirable for the Christian, but it's not necessary for salvation. Now, the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. And so we want to go through our outline here. First of all, when you study the topic, the subject of repentance throughout the Scriptures, it relates to a turning from sin to the Savior. It's not just a change of mind. You know, you can change your mind about a lot of things. But until you actually do something about it, it's not going to make any difference. Repentance is to turn to God from your sin. That's what that means. Um, in the Old Testament, the word repent is used over and over, some 1,050 times. And sometimes it's literally, all it means is somebody walking down a path and turning around. So they're not all related to salvation and, and that word for repentance. Sometimes it just means somebody physically turning around. But many times it refers to someone turning from something to the Lord. One scholar, Victor Hamilton, writes this in the theological workbook of the Old Testament. He says it combines, the word repentance, combines in itself two requisites. Salvation combines two requisites of repentance. To turn from evil and to turn to good. See, if you just turn away from your sin, that's not going to save you. There's a lot of people who live moral lives, right, that are on their way to hell. Um, there's a lot of cults that demand of their, their members to live very stringent moral lives. And they think somehow by doing that, they're earning God's favor. But if they're just turning away from sin, if they're just trying to live a moral life, that's not going to save them. You have to turn to something. What are you turning to? The Bible calls us to turn to Christ. Um, he concludes this. He says, This conscience, conscious decision of turning to God includes repudiation of all sin and affirmation of God's total will for one's life. See, when you come to Christ, it's not like you're just adding you know, part of your life and putting Jesus in there. He's not just getting piece of the, a piece of the pie. What did Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, right? Take up your cross, which is not something, gold around your neck. It's an instrument of death. You have to die to yourself, basically. And then you can follow me. And so Jesus was very clear when he taught these things. And somehow we've dumbed it down to something, we just want to make it a slick little presentation to people. Um, in the New Testament, there are, are basically three New Testament words in the original language in Greek that are used for repentance. And they occur in either the noun or the verb form. Metanoia is the, is the Greek word, is, and they occur upwards about 60 times. So repentance is not a subject that the New Testament knows nothing about. Um, Matter of fact, all you have to do is look at John the Baptist, his teaching, his preaching, and Jesus' preaching. Both of them had the same message. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. The message was simply this. Repent for the what? The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? You better, you better change your direction. You better change something. So what is repentance? Um, MacArthur says this, godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. Godly sorrow for one's sin and a resolve to turn from it. 
R.C. Trench describes repentance as that mighty change in mind, heart, and life wrought by the Spirit of God. It's a compound word, and it's taking, taken from two words, meaning to change one's mind, but it means even more than that. The Dictionary of the New Testament says this, uh, according to another scholar, it, repentance plays very little part, um, or to change one's mind plays very little part in the New Testament. Rather, the decision by the whole man to turn around is stressed. So it's not just a change in your mind. It's not just saying, oh, okay, I guess Jesus died on a cross. Oh, I guess he was God. Uh, it's not just that. Rather, the decision of the whole man to turn around is stressed. It is clear that we are concerned neither with a purely outward turning nor with a merely intellectual change of ideas. So it's not something that just happens up here. It's not something that happens just outside of yourself. You turn over a new leaf and decide to live a new way. That's not true repentance. It's the whole being being transformed, being turned around. Wayne Grudem says this, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So repentance is no more a meritorious work than its counterpart, faith. See, that's their argument. Well, if you include repentance when you're sharing Christ with people, then that's a work. That's something they have to do. Well, guess what? You can't do it on your own. The Bible indicates that very clear, and we'll see that in a second here. But genuine repentance pleads with the Lord for forgiveness and for deliverance from the burden of sin that you're carrying around and the fear that you have in your heart that one day you'll face God, who's a holy God, you'll face him in judgment with the potential of going to hell. You know, I, I never forget, you know, we used to hand out these tracts on campus when I was in college, you know, put out by uh, Bill Bright, and it was the four spiritual laws. And the first question was, you know, do you know that, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life? And I thought, huh, is that true for everybody? I mean, if they repent and they turn to Christ, well, yeah, it's, it is a wonderful plan. Well, what if they don't? It doesn't sound too wonderful to me. So you have to have that genuine turning from your sin to the Savior. And you have to communicate that when you're sharing your faith with people. And that's kind of bold. That's a hard thing to share with people. But if you leave that out, it's, it's very crucial. Um, it's kind of like the attitude, the, the attitude of the, the publican in the New Testament. You hear me say on Sundays, you know, at the end of the service. You know, if, if you're feeling God convicting you of your sin and you want salvation, you need to turn to Christ. You need to cry out to God and what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Somebody asked me one time, why do you, why do you tell people to pray that prayer? Because it's biblical. You're not going to find what they call the sinner's prayer in the Bible, but you'll find that prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, and that's what we should communicate to people when we are sharing the gospel. Because repentance is not merely changing your behavior. It's not just changing your intellectual thoughts. It involves a change of the heart and purpose. And inevitably, it results in a change of behavior. Burkhoff says this, Like faith, repentance has intellectual, emotional, and volitional ramifications. He describes the intellectual element of repentance as a change of view, a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. You don't hear that in a lot of churches today. You hear the message that, well, we want people to feel welcome. We, we want people to, to feel, you know, uh, not guilty. We want people to be affirmed.
the emotional element is, he says, a change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy God. In other words, when you truly run into somebody who is ready to come to Christ, they are intellectually filled with guilt. They are emotionally a wreck over their sin. And the volitional element is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin and a disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. They realize that they can't get themselves out of the hole they dug themselves into. That's why they're asking you. That's why they're saying, well, what can Christ do for me? He can forgive you, but you have to turn to him. (laughs) You have to ask him to save you. Repentance is a total, a response of the total person. Uh, Some people describe it as total surrender. Total surrender. Think back when you came to Christ. You realized there was nowhere else to go. You were undone over your sin. Whether it was great or whether it was small, it bothered you, to put it mildly. But it's also a work of God. It's not something you generate. Sometimes we tell people to repent, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge this is something that God grants us, the Bible says. Repentance is a gift that God grants us by his sovereign grace. And that's what results in the change of thinking, the change of feeling, and the behavior changes. It doesn't, we don't generate this. Um, and if you're questioning, well, how do I know that? Turn over to 2 Timothy, and I'll point out a verse here that, that, that tells us clearly that God grants us repentance. Just like saving faith, repentance is a gift that God grants by his sovereign grace. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 24, it says there, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. All right, so he's talking about someone who's serving the Lord. In, in this situation, it could be a pastor, it could be an elder, it could be a lame or whatever, but they're, they're, they're able to teach, patiently enduring evil, And then verse 25, it says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then it says this, God may perhaps what? What's it say? Grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, there's only two kinds of people in the world today. There are people who are captive to do Satan's will, and there are people who are captive to do God's will. There's no gray area in between those two. Either you're a child of the devil, or you're a child of the Lord Most High. It's not something that sinful man can produce. This is why we call it being born again. This is why we say it's, it's transformation. It's something that God has to do in you. But at the same time, we are told to call people to this. Call people to repent. Because sinners are the responsible to repent. But when sinner, sinners do repent, it's because God graciously granted them that repentance. They're not going to just come up with it on their own. Now, there's a lot of people who feel sorry for their sin. You know what? And that's part, a normal part of repentance. But you know what? It is possible to feel sorry for your sin and to not truly be repentant unto salvation. Who's a good example of that in the New Testament? Judas Iscariot. Right? I mean, we know the story about Judas Iscariot. We're going to be looking at this getting closer to Easter on a Sunday. Judas Iscariot felt remorse. He felt sorry for betraying Jesus. Yet, the Bible says he was not converted. So he felt sorry over his sin, but it wasn't to the point of conversion. It says in Matthew 27, verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, it says he changed his mind. He repented. 
and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. And he even confessed his sin. He says, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. You say, well, that looks like genuine repentance. I mean, he, meant he gave back what he took. He, he confessed it. And they said, what is this to us? See to it yourself. And in verse 5 it says, In throwing down the silver, the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. The scripture indicates that he did not, he was not saved. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, it says, Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And this is why I'm saying it's not something you can just do on your own. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 11, Paul told the Corinthians that sorrow according to the will of God can lead to repentance. And it can be a valuable thing. He says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So we have to stop and we have to make sure we're clear when we're telling people about salvation and the attitude of repentance. Um, sorrow for sin is not enough. That will not save you. Biblical repentance is a turning of the whole person from their sin to God through Christ. Um, and the repentant person, the person who's genuinely repentant, accepts responsibility for their sin. They call out in faith to God for salvation. And then they prove their repentance and their faith by the work that does, the works that come out of their lives. The good works that God produces through them. And that's why it, it's never wise to take someone who just prayed the prayer of faith. You don't want to discourage them. But then again, you don't want to, you know, put them behind the pulpit either. You know, there's a time. There's a, there's a time to be tested. There's, you have to vet that salvation to make sure it's genuine. Uh, some biblical examples of, of repentance. Look back at the book of Jonah, a little book in the Old Testament, prophet. Jonah chapter 3. And we've gone through this book, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but um, he was a prophet who was told by God to go to a town called Nineveh, which was an extremely wicked city. And he thought, I don't want to go, God. I, I don't want to go and preach to them because what if they repent? <laughs> what if they're actually saved? I don't want them to be saved. They deserve your judgment. But he reluctantly went after his all his escapades that he went through, but he went to Nineveh and he proclaimed God's message. And God's message was in 40 days the city would be overthrown for its sin. And to Jonah's displeasure, and this is kind of boiling it all down to a short little summarization, the people of Nineveh believed in God, it tells us in verse 5. And their genuine faith was evident in that they fasted and they turned from their sins. Look at verse uh, Jonah 3, verse uh, uh, 1 there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Big city. A lot of people. Jonah began to go into the city, verse 4, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And verse 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed the message that God had sent through his prophet. And they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance, from the greatest of them to the least of them. All of them. It's amazing. 
And verse 6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, which was really odd for a, a king, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, which is also a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. And he issued a proclamation, and he published it throughout Nineveh. Verse 7, By the decree of the king and to his nobles, neither, let neither beast, man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So what's he doing? He's proclaiming a fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They didn't know it was going to happen. By faith, they did what the prophet told them to do, what God had called them to do. In verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, it says God relented of the disaster that he would, said would, uh, he would do to them, and he did not do it. Then it says in verse 10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. So, how did he know their repentance was genuine? Well, God knows everything, but it was genuine because he saw their, their deeds. He saw what they were doing as a result of God saving them. What was the evidence of their, of their genuine repentance? That their faith was genuine? Repentance is turning to God from sin. That's exactly what they did. They turned from their wicked way to a holy God. You see the same connection in the New Testament in, in the book we're studying now on, on Sundays, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Um, Paul kind of talks about the Thessalonians in a positive light here. And in verse 8 he says, For the, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So what is he saying? He's saying, wow, these, these Thessalonians, these pagan and, and Jewish people were transformed by God's grace. They repented. They left their pagan religions. They left their idol worship. They left their, their wicked behavior. And they believed God for the gospel. And they were saved. They believed in the gospel that, that Paul preached. And their lives made it very evident. Clearly, their faith was inseparable from their repentance. Look at what it says in verse 9 of chapter 1 there, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned, what, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So it's very evident. Something happened. Something changed. Paul did not preach just believe, and then maybe later on you should turn from your sins. You know, it takes a while, it's a time, you know, it's okay. I mean, you don't know how many people in churches today are living together outside the covenant of marriage, and yet they're going to a church. And they're thinking it's okay. And the church thinks it's okay. The church is like, well, you know, they're new believers. <laughs> Give them some grace. No. That's, that's not the heart of a, someone who's been transformed by the gospel. You hate your sin. You desire to turn from it. He included repentance in his gospel. I mean, the whole Thessalonian church were, was people who came from a pagan background and their whole lives were changed. They, they, the, the, the Jewish people who were in the Thessalonian church, they finally understood that, wow, you know, I don't have to do all these sacrifices and stuff anymore. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed himself for my sin. And the pagans said, I don't have to worship these pagan gods and I can free myself from this immoral behavior now. To serve the living and true God. 
Paul summarized his message to King Agrippa in, in Acts 26, verse 18, by saying the Lord had sent him to the Gentiles, look at what it says in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Remember I said there's only two groups of people, those who serve Satan and those who serve God. That sounds very harsh. But from God's perspective, you're either on his team or you're not. There's no gray area. It says that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Those are, are Jesus' direct words to Paul. That's exactly what Jesus told Paul to say to the Gentiles. That's what he was to proclaim to the lost people. Paul just didn't make this up. It was a message about repentance. It was a message about turning from sin, from darkness, from Satan's domain, to light, to God's, to the kingdom. So Paul goes on to say that in obedience to Christ, he preached in Acts 26, 20, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate with repentance. I mean, Paul's message to the pagan world, to the unsaved world, was not just, you know what, just change your mind about Jesus and believe in him as your savior. Don't, don't be concerned about all these pagan gods you're worshiping. You know, don't worry about that. We're not concerned about that. We just want to hear you say you believe in Jesus. That's not what Paul said to them. Paul's gospel, which he got straight from Jesus, included turning to God from their sin. And that's why, the, that's why the message of the cross, that's why the gospel is so offensive. I mean, nobody likes to be told they're a sinner. Nobody likes to be, have their sins pointed out. That, that's, I don't like that. No, nobody in this, this room likes that. Unfortunately, the church has... Stop doing that in general. And they're more concerned about how people feel than being, having their sins pointed out because it is so offensive. But Jesus points that out to us over and over again. He says, hey, if, if you think they're upset at me and my message, wait till they get a hold of you as the church. So if you're not getting any pushback let me say this, when you share the gospel with somebody, you might want to examine what you're sharing with them. I'm not saying we go out and maliciously and intentionally offend people. That's not what we're called to do either. We're called to be gentle. We're called to be gracious. We're called to be loving. But the message in and of itself, beloved, is one that offends. So repentance is a turn to God from sin. Secondly, the presentation of the gospel is incomplete if we don't talk about Repentance, if you don't talk about turning to God from sin. John the Baptist preached repentance to lost people, and he made it clear that he wasn't talking about just a change of mind, as so many people say that's what repentance means, just a change of mind. He wasn't talking about a change of mind, apart from a change of behavior. It's both. It's always both. In Luke 3.3, 3, he summarizes his message, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 8 of Luke 3, he says that you have to bear fruits, keeping with repentance. In other words, I want to see what God is doing in your life. And then he even goes on in verse 11 to 14, and it says that he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse 4, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Those are major changes. The valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will be made straight. Those are major changes. Those are changes that you will notice. Verse 7, he said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, 
Look at what he says to him in verse 4, or verse 7. You brood of vipers. <laughs> that doesn't sound very friendly. It doesn't sound very, you know. I mean, what we do today in our churches to make people feel comfortable. I mean, there are churches that are taking words out of the language and the songs. They don't want to talk about blood, the blood of Jesus. Well, that's too offensive. They don't talk about sin. Call it a mistake. You know, they want people to come back to their church because they feel good about the message. And so the message usually isn't one that convicts. It's one that, that builds up their ego and talks about how they can fill their, their wallet or talk about how to have a better family or how to be a better parent. All those things are nice. But unbelievers can do those things. They feel good about themselves, but they're still going to go to hell. <laughs> so he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he tells them this in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't go back and start talking about Abraham, your father. And he, he, he you know, because that was what they would do, the religious people. Oh, you know, well, we're, we're Jewish. Abraham's our father, so we're good to go. No. That's like when you ask somebody, you know, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, yeah, I was raised in a Christian family. That's not what I asked you. Are you a Christian? Well, my parents are Christian, and, you know, yeah. so, you know, we like to ride on other people's coattails, and you're not going to do that into heaven. It won't happen. And so he, he begins to list there in verse 10. He says, the crowds asked him, what should we do? What, what, what happens with this repentance? What does this look like? And he answered them in verse 11. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. In other words, if you're truly repentant and you're truly forgiven and you're truly grateful that God has saved you from your sin, you're not going to be stingy anymore. You're going to be willing to share. And whoever has food, do likewise. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? These are people who apparently felt some form of conviction over their sin. And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Why? Because the tax, collector, tax collectors in, in Jesus' day ripped people off. They were rich. I mean, they were probably worse than the IRS. <laughs> it's hard to do, but I bet you they were. And so he says, hey, don't do that anymore. And even soldiers, another group of people, verse 14, also came to him. Well, what, what are we supposed to do? If we're truly repentant, what does that look like? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, which was very common in Jesus' day. And be content with your wages. I mean, Jesus did the same thing. He preached a message of repentance to lost people. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 1, 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, if repentance was not important, Jesus wouldn't have said that. He would have just said, believe the gospel. Just believe in me. In Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, he clearly told the Jews, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When Jesus sent out the disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, he sent out his disciples to preach. Their message was to be that men should repent. That's a big part of the gospel. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They didn't make up a new message that was not as offensive. They got it straight from Jesus. Like the Apostle Paul. In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur says this, Repentance has always been the foundation of the biblical call to salvation. No evangelism that omits the message of repentance 
can properly be called the gospel. For sinners cannot come to Jesus Christ apart from a radical change of heart, mind, and will. That demands a spiritual crisis leading to a complete turnaround and ultimately a wholesale transformation. It's the only kind of conversion that Scripture recognizes. And yet, so many times, in our mind, because we want someone to make us feel better, basically, when we share the gospel with somebody and we want a positive response from them, we tend to change the message of the gospel a little bit. We don't make it sound as harsh. We, we, we kind of, you know, um, just dumb it down to the basic level so everybody can just feel good. Well, what's the relationship between repentance and saving faith? They're, they're bound together, but at the same time, they are two sides of the same coin, you could kind of say. The two words have different nuances. They have different emphasis, John Calvin said. True saving faith, which is trusting in Christ alone, in his shed blood to deliver us from God's wrath, includes repentance. You can't truly lay hold of Christ for salvation with one hand, while at the same time knowingly hold on to your sins with the other. That's why it demands a complete surrender. And we know that. If we're genuinely saved here tonight, we know what that means. To genuinely trust Christ, we have to turn completely from our sin. doesn't mean we're perfect, because we're not. But we've turned completely, because God has done that in our, our hearts and our lives. There's a lot of people that verbally profess belief in Christ while holding on to their sin. Years ago, and I've told this story before, I met with someone here in our church, no longer here, claimed to be a believer, worship, you know, raised his hands Sunday, really into worship on Sundays and everything, and had an issue, an issue with substance abuse. And he'd go for weeks without partaking, and then he'd end up right back, and we'd meet, and he'd be sorry and feel bad, and confess it, and then try to move on. And it just kept on happening over and over and over again. And finally, I just called him out here in the fellowship hall. I said, what is your problem? <laughs> what don't you understand? Why do you keep on doing this? Because it was more than just a yearly slip-up. And he looked at me right in the face, in the eyes, and he said, you know what? Pastor, I just love the world. I love the world. And I did what you just did. I just went like that. And I said, you know what? You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're on your way to hell. And you need to, you need to repent. And his attitude, how dare you call me? The Bible says, either you love Christ, you can't love both, right? And you're, you're openly telling me you love the world. You love your sin. You won't leave let it go. And to genuinely trust Christ, you'd have to turn from your sin. I don't know whatever happened to them. They moved on. But unless that gentleman truly repented, he's on his way quickly to hell. I don't care how many church services he go to, how many hands he raises in worship. You can't hold on to your sin and still come to Christ. It's an empty profession without repentance. It's not true saving faith. You know, it'd be like me driving to Idaho and halfway there getting past Winnemucca and say, you know what? I, I, uh, I don't like going to Idaho. Is that going to change anything? If I say, I, I wish I weren't going to Idaho. I, I really believe that San Diego is the place I should be going. But I keep driving to Idaho. What's going to happen? I'm going to end up in Idaho. doesn't work that way. Even though I don't like it, even though I wish I was going somewhere else, even though I knew where I should be going, until I actually change the direction, 
All that's meaningless. It's meaningless thoughts. True repentance means that you don't just think about it or talk about it. You actually turn around. You actually start driving to San Diego. You actually turn from your sin. And you turn to God. Your behavior reflects your beliefs. If you truly believe in Christ as your Savior, you'll turn from your sin. That's repentance. Edwin Orr wrote this, the difference between true faith and what the Scripture calls false faith, and remember, there is both. You can have a false faith, a dead faith. He said the difference between the true faith and the false faith is a lack of repentance. It's illustrated in the story of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 24. We're not going to read through all that. But you know some of that, that story. Verse 13, it tells us Simon believed that he was baptized. He continued with Philip. And then when Peter and John came to the town and the people received the Holy Spirit through prayers, what did Simon do? <laughs> he, he offered to pay them so that he could have that power. Warped. You can't buy the power of God, but he thought you could. And here's what Peter said to him in verse 20. Acts 8, verse 20. This is someone who believed, someone who was baptized, and someone who was ministering with these disciples. Here's what's his response in verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, he says, repent of, the wick of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Peter didn't say, oh, yeah, well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, we all mess up. We all make mistakes. So, uh, Simon, don't worry about it. Clu clearly, Luke says that he believed but he wasn't saved because his faith didn't include repentance. He was still part of his whole, whole sorcery thing, trying to buy the power of God. We aren't faithfully presenting the gospel to lost people if we imply that they can get to heaven by faith without turning from their sin. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, verse 47, Luke reports the risen Lord's great commission to the disciples. And it was this, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all generations, all, all nations. I mean, how can anyone dodge the fact that repentance is at the heart of the gospel? I don't know. But repentance isn't just something a person does at the moment of salvation and then says, whoo, I'm, I'm glad I'm over that. I did that. No, it's, it's the whole Christian life. You live a life of repentance. Why? Because you're not perfect. There's occasions when you turn back to your sin and God's got to convict your heart and you've got you to correct it. You take it to the Lord. So it's a turning from sin to the Savior. And then quickly here, those who are saved will be marked by repentance as an ongoing way of life. Okay? Christians grow increasingly sensitive to sin. I mean, you know, when you first got saved, maybe you had, you know, foul language that you used and everything, and you got saved, and maybe you slipped up a couple times, but you realize, wow, this is wrong, and over time, that behavior changed. At the moment, it seemed horrible. It seemed, oh, wow, this is such a big sin. I don't know if I ever... But now, what is God doing? You know, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for several years and he kind of dials it down even more. So now it's not, maybe you're not cursing, but maybe you're thinking things that you shouldn't be thinking. And God's saying, yeah, that's sin too. You know, we got we to gotta get rid of that too. We got to work on that area. And to grow in Christ means to walk more closely with him in the light of his word. That's why it's so important to be taught the word of God. Because when you're taught the word of God, when you hide it in your heart, when you memorize the scripture, what does God do? He uses that to convict us, to wash us, to, to, to show us what he desires of us. 
If we didn't have this book, beloved, what, what would we know of God? I mean, other than, well, there must be a God because look at the trees. I mean, what a, what a wonderful gift it is that he gave us not just his word, but his Holy Spirit to reside within us, to convict us, to, to show us when we, we do wrong things. We'll never be sinless, but we, the more we walk with Christ, we should sin less. And when we do sin, our desire is to turn from it back to God. A life of turning to God from sin is the mark of true conversion. There was a story told of a girl who trusted Christ and she applied for membership in, in this church where she came to faith in Christ. And they were interviewing her for membership and one of the deacons asked her, were, were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus into your life? And her response was, yes, sir. And then he said, well, are you still a sinner? She said this, to tell you the truth, I feel that I'm a greater sinner than ever before. And he said, well, then what real change have you experienced? She said, I don't quite know how to explain it, except I used to be a sinner running after sin. But now that I'm saved, I'm a sinner running from sin. Big difference. Not perfect, but big difference. The final thing here to consider is when sinners repent, God welcomes them with great joy. And that's part of sharing the gospel. That's, that's what should be exciting when we go out and we evangelize and we, we share with people the life-giving message of the gospel. Even though sometimes it's difficult to tell people, look, you're, 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 you're mired in your sin. You, know, you need an answer for this. And sometimes it takes, you have to be patient with the process. Um, sometimes I've witnessed to people and you know what, you can tell within two minutes they're not ready. <laughs> they're not ready. They're not broken. They're not, they don't care. They're joking about their sin. You know, yeah, I'll go to hell. I don't care. You know, all my friends are going to be there anyway. That, that kind of attitude, right? And you try to bring some semblance to the conversation and seriousness to it, but they're not ready. You know, and, and you don't want to necessarily spend too much time there. Because God may have someone over here who is ready. See, that's what God is doing. This is God's work. It's not ours. We're not out there saving people. God lines people up and he brings people across our path. Some of them are ready to hear the gospel for the first time. And maybe they won't respond. But you know what? You had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And maybe they didn't come to faith in Christ. But maybe one day you'll see him in heaven. Because you were faithful to what God called you to do. But when sinners repent, when you actually lead someone to Christ and you see them unload their burden of sin onto Christ, it's a, it's a very joyful experience. God grants repentance and it gives us great hope. It means that we turn from God to God from our sin and he will be gracious to us because of Christ's death on our behalf. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament picture God entering and um, entreating sinners to turn back to him. And this is what should be our message to people. In Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wickedness, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. God will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, that's the message of the gospel. When you do repent from your sin, when you do turn from your sin, you're turning to something that is just pure love and, and forgiveness and, and wonder. And abundant pardoning from the Lord. Jesus in the New Testament tells the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the first two emphasize the joy in heaven when one sinner repents. In the third story, he really illustrates repentance on part of the prodigal son who said, you know what? I will get up and I'll go back to my father. We know the story. And I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one as your hired men. This is what his, 
his son was doing. But he just didn't think about it. Because if he just thought about it, where would he be? He'd still be in the pig's trough, eating the slop of the pigs. What did he do? He actually did it. He actually went back to his father. Why? Because he was at the end of himself. He was broken beyond belief. There was no hope for him. And you know what? I don't think the Bible tells us in that story that the father, oh, yeah, you're no good. You're, you're no excuse for a son. You know, get out of here. Go pay for your sin. He didn't do that at all. The father saw him, it says, a far way off and ran to him. He didn't even let him get the whole confession out of his mouth before he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and he welcomed him with great joy, the Bible tells us. That's God's resp response to a sinner who is willing to come and trust Christ with a repentant heart, repentful heart. He welcomes us with great joy. Ask yourself this question. Did your profession of faith in Christ include repentance? Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, says the Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, we don't want people to be deceived. We don't want people to be given a false hope that they're saved when they're not. And so when we share the gospel with people, when we share that message, we have to include that part of the message is repentance. Part of the message is turning from your sin, whatever it may be, to God and to God alone and to Christ alone for the forgiveness of that sin. Because anything else, beloved, is counterfeit. It's not real. And that's why our churches are filled with so many people who think they're Christians, but they're not. They're far from the, the, the kingdom of heaven because they're trapped in their own religiosity and they think because they come to church and sit in a, sit in a pew and hear someone teach for an hour or so and, and raise their hands in worship that that makes them a Christian. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the Bible says even, even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. They know. They know he is. But they're not saved. How much more does our message need to be drawn under the, where the scripture puts it? We, we don't have the right to go out and, and just kind of make up the gospel as we go. It's given to us. And yeah, it's a hard message. It's hard sometimes to share the gospel with people. It takes boldness. It, it, it takes kind of an unapologetic attitude. Uh, but you know what? I'd rather, much rather, I'd much rather risk offending somebody here on earth than not seeing someone in heaven that I thought was going to be there. Because maybe I, I didn't share the complete gospel with them somehow. Uh, it's just very important that we, we do it scripturally and we do it as unto the Lord. Amen. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and, and then we can, uh, you guys can have some discussion a little bit. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that um, the gospel does include repentance. It's, it's not something that's added on later. It's something that we need to understand, that we need to turn from our sin to God. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, who's yet to feel the burden of their sin before a holy God, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in their own heart. Father, we thank you that you have given your son to die on a cross in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. He paid the debt that, that we owed that we could never pay. And so for that, we're eternally grateful. And Father, you truly have transformed us. You've changed us. We're not perfect by any means, but Lord, we, we continue to desire to live for you each and every day, and we're growing more like Christ each and every day as we spend time in your word, as we spend time with each other in fellowship. 
And Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to do um, that work in and through us. Lord, there's so many people here in the Bay Area that need to hear the gospel that are not hearing it. And Lord, unfortunately, they're not seeing it a lot of times in those who are professing Christ. And so, Father, I pray that as believers, we would do our due diligence to make sure that we're living for Christ each and every day. And Father, that you'd be glorified. And Lord, that you would draw people here to this place there, where we know that um, whoever's teaching, Lord, I pray that it would be found upon your word and your word alone. It's not our opinions we share. It's, it's the truth of the word of God. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless that to our hearts even tonight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.